The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So big welcome everyone. This is week five. We'll have small groups next week. And we'll also begin talking about wise speech and undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm with our words and even through the absence of speech. Um, but tonight, looking at the third precept, this training and undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. And uh, just more widely, understanding our role with sensuality, which is really what all the precepts are about. But before I do that, I just want to mention a few things. Um, one of the people taking the class, Victor, sent an email about climate, the climate crisis. I am just reading from this email. I, like many others these days, am struck by the dilemma and challenges of climate change. Each of us, when we engage in behaviors that contribute to climate change, does irreparable harm to other beings, both now um, harm to other beings, both now and in the future. At the same time, we are taking from others in the future opportunities for a safe and comfortable life. This is no longer an esoteric abstract, but we now know that climate change is a fact of life and that we each, that we each contribute in large and small ways. Of course, we can make the same argument about racism, homophobia, sexism, and many other aspects of life in these times. But somehow climate change, climate change seems to be something bigger, more violent, more harmful to more beings now and in the future. On one hand, undertaking the precepts, especially the first two, seems to me to be the only way to meaningfully address climate change as a Buddhist. Yet in the face of its magnitude and urgency, climate change seems to be, seems to call for a much more comprehensive response from worldlings than simply doing a little less of the harmful things we do. I wonder if climate change isn't really just the outward manifestation of the enormity of human greed. Perhaps we have become an entire species of hungry ghosts and climate change is the result. Is there any place in the canon where the Buddha discusses the challenges that a dilemma of this magnitude presents for us all? Thanks, Victor, for sending that in. And I sent in the email um, today, uh, the article and the talks that Venerable Analio, this German monk, Bhikkhu, um, has given on this subject, mindfully facing climate change, I think is that uh, work that he offers. So you might take a look at that. But it really has to do with this relationship we all have with sensuality, with sense experience. And in so much of the work we've been looking at this summer on sila, moral sensitivity, has to do with these deep habits around the way we relate to sense experience. 
And the short of it is, and, and we don't want to take this as some given truth, but we want to explore it, that we relate to sensuality, to our sense experience, to what we see and what we touch and what we smell and what we see, hear, whatever else I forgot. Think, and what we think about taste, yeah. We want to notice this tendency of being a somebody who wants to consume something, wants to get something, wants to own something, possess something, have something. So that the Buddha uses that simile of feeding, consuming, being in a dependent relationship. You, like in terms of sexuality, and are the way our you know, sexual attraction works for each of us. Uh, sometimes, on just that grosser level, it's like, I want something from you. I want a touch, I want an experience, I want a release, I want some kind of possession, some power over, I mean, all kinds of different varieties in that activity we call sexuality. And uh, we just want to illuminate it. We don't want to make it good or bad. It's just what it is. And the question is, how do things unfold when we more and more illuminate it with awareness? That non-judging sensitivity, intimacy. What does sexuality look like when all the lights are on, you know, and not figuratively, in our mind, in our heart, you know, like, I really want to be present. Because you know how it is, it's like, we have these patterns of, of just, um, for everything, you know, whether it's devouring our favorite kind of food, or having our favorite kind of sexual interaction, or whatever it might be, favorite kind of affectionate touch, music, just to, to look at the habit of the mind. And uh, does it hold up in the light of day or does it get transformed? Am I afraid of that transformation? Like how I relate to food if I'm actually present in the eating of the food? How my sexual activities are transformed when I choose to be aware. Why, you know, we can challenge ourselves. Why do I not want to know? Why do I not want to feel everything that's here when this experience unfolds? See both the experience in a breath, like the other people that are involved, what I'm sensitive there, the depth, to the subtlety, not just on the grosser levels, but just to be sensitive to the whole thing. And then who do we become and what do our relationships begin to look like on all levels when we're investing in that kind of moral sensitivity and just that awareness, that present moment awareness, sensitivity. And are we willing to go down that rabbit hole? Because things will change, for sure. 
in every way, you know. And it's a choice, because if you feel like things are working fine for you in life, maybe you don't want to go down that rabbit hole of bringing the light of awareness, bringing the heart sensitivity, curiosity into every aspect of our lives, including sexuality, or sexual relations, or sexual activities, or sexual thoughts. So this is, uh, in terms of climate change, you know, I, I do feel like it, it, it really has to do, this climate change or the climate crisis, what's happening on the planet, in terms of the systems, the intersecting, interdependent systems, whether we talk about the currents of the ocean or the currents of the air, the gases that surround the planet, the soil, the dance of life eating life, right? But things have really changed. And they are, the, the changes are naturally expressing everything that's in motion. And one of the things that's been in motion for a long time as humans have become the dominant species on the planet is humans haven't embodied the kind of sensitivity we're, cap we're capable of embodying, that great breadth and depth. And so what happens to the other systems that we're dancing with here when we do feel everything, sense everything, and the natural caring that comes from that sensitivity? How do we consume? How do we relate? Would we have industrial agriculture, for example? Would we need as many things as we have? If we felt everything, would there be this skewed distribution of resources if we felt everything? How would we relate to water? How would we relate to the air we breathe? I mean, just imagine if uh, none of us got to consume anything without, like there was a prerequisite for any consumption, that you have to feel and see and know everything that's related to this consumption. Like where it came from, who worked hard, were they paid fairly or not, what kind of work conditions, what did it do to the soil, what did it do to the air, the water, other creatures. You could have whatever you wanted. Imagine a world where you could have whatever you wanted, but you had to feel everything associated with having it. Who would we be? It's a little bit like, I don't know if it was Rawls, this uh, philosopher, but had this idea, and there's a, there's a name for this philosophical idea, that um, what world would we create if we didn't know what position we'd have in that wor world, what location, where we'd be bo born, favorable conditions or not so favorable, 
what sort of world would we create? And it's, it's, I think, a deeper version of that. Like if we were willing and had to feel everything, what sort of world would this be? So um, I think it's a worthy thing to check out this, uh, what do the precepts, how does moral sensitivity inform our climate crisis? Or any, just like Victor said, any of the crises. Then there was another email sent in even longer ago, I think after the first class, so sorry about not getting to it sooner from Cutter. And um, Cutler, I should say. And I just want to read a bit of this because it's a really important comment. Um, And, you know, my speech isn't always perfectly clear, so I own some of that. Um, Because when we talk about restraint or refraining, it can be misunderstood. And like I said, I'll take some of the blame for not being that clear, that I shouldn't be thinking those thoughts I shouldn't be saying those words, and I shouldn't be doing those things. But the thing we want to always remember about this creative power, right? it's an restraint and the capacity to refrain is our creative, empowered response to life. It's not a should. And it's not something that you or I do. I don't I can't actually, personally, keep myself from thinking or saying something or doing something. But I can live in a way where I have more presence, more of that moral sensitivity, more of that ongoing mindful awareness. And then what arises from that sensitivity, that paying attention, in that non-judging way, is this natural creative capacity to refrain from acting on habits that are actually there in my heart. The impulse is there to say something, to think something, to do something, but there's something else there, this creative force of restraint. So we have a word or phrase for that, hiri otapa. It's nice to know that because it's a really central part of understanding moral sensitivity from a Buddhist perspective. It is something that grows. It's an understanding, a very earthy wisdom, you could say, that grows and develops. But it's not personal. You or I do not control that capacity to, like when we get in the vicinity of acting unskillfully, you know, there's that the moral sensitivity gets activated. Okay, honey, be careful here. Remember what you've done before and the results you got from doing that before or the results other people have got that you've observed when they did this or did that or thought this or said that. So be careful. And then as we get a little closer to to the precipice of thinking something, saying something, doing something, that moral sensitivity manifests as that force of restraint. No, honey, we're not going to do that. It's just like that wise parent arises in the heart. You don't do it, I don't do it, 
It happens when there's been enough data collected, like that that doesn't help, that that doesn't lead anywhere. And that data is just that ongoing mindful awareness, moral sensitivity that connects the dots. Oh yeah, you do this, you relate like that, I took that, wasn't really mine, and then there was all this lacerating guilt and had to lie to my partner about where I got that, you know, and that hurt. That was like a dead weight in my heart. So finally I gave it back. But now that all lives on in me. It's become my moral sensitivity, not guilt, but like, yeah, that doesn't really work to take things that aren't mine. You know, I want to look at this person, this part of that person's body, or I want to fantasize about that person in this way, but I realize that that objectifies that person. It steals their humanity away, or it, it, it sort of forces them into this object to serve my desire, which is a cause for harm. Like I've reduced them to this idea or this object to meet my some need that I think I have. And when we're really sensitive, it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, we already know that. It's like uh, interesting with sexual or romantic fantasies. It's like there are certain people we won't do that to because we respect them. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, no, no, not that person. It's a, And that should be the clue. Like, well, the only difference is I know that person and this other person I don't know so it's easier to cause that harm to them, you know, and to turn them in to an object of my fantasy and they lose, for me, their humanity, right? And then that becomes, that has reverberations when we interact with that person or just generally interact with other people. It's like, I don't know if everyone was here last week, but I shared a sutta where a, a Buddhist monk way back, I guess around the time of the Buddha, was uh, chastised by a, a dewa, a celestial being, from stealing the scent of a flower, right? So it seems like, oh my God. You know, we want to interpret that like, that's tight. <laughs> you know, you can't even smell a flower. But it's this uh, consuming without the awareness and consuming with the ignorance that there's somebody who's going to get something. So like what I was trying to convey in the instructions during the guided sit tonight, like we weren't an empty flute trying to own the music as it moved through us, right? It was more utilitarian, like that's a that can be a very generous and beautiful way to conceive or play, you know, hold our life. That we're, we are together doing this amazing dance and together we're trying to do something beautiful. 
something that's healing, something that contributes. And see, it, it changes from like, like even what we might consider a, a wise view, like, oh, I'll give you your share and I'll have my share. And, but that can be kind of tight. And we can think of that in terms of our sexual interactions too. Like how can we together, one, two, three, it doesn't really matter. It's interesting at the time of the Buddha, you know, from what I understand from the scholars, it was a sexual, in some ways, you know, I'm sure it wasn't perfect, but in some ways it was a pretty sexually liberated time. And, you know, just culturally how they understood sexuality, maybe that's generally true and more, you know, I don't know what you call it, less, every word is <laughs> fraught. I was going to say developed, but, you know, highly tech, you know, advanced technology and uh, large metropolitan areas, you know, more simple agrarian settings. Because when people are living around a lot of other animals, sexuality is understood in a more naturalistic way, as opposed to, you know, our ideas around sexuality. All we have to do is listen to the lyrics of our popular music, you know, but there's so much charge. And we have ways, you know, more than anything, uh, Cam sent me a quote that uh, is really useful from Joseph Campbell uh, to share. Joseph Campbell, some of you know, was a very popular uh, person who had studied myths. And uh, yeah, just you can find some of his great stuff online, I'm sure. And his book, The Power of Myth. But he wrote, I don't believe people are looking for the meaning of life as much as they are looking for the experience of being alive. Another more simplistic way of saying that is we are addicted to intensity. We're addicted to energy. We're addicted to that enlivened, heightened, amplified. And, and it, isn't, you know, it isn't just enough to say that we like intensity because we like movement, don't we? We like, almost like a panic attack, you know, the pressure builds and builds and builds, except we want it to get to where it's almost too much, but not too much, right? Then it becomes a panic attack. Then we feel like we're gonna die or we're gonna explode or like it's too much. And then we come out the other end and even if it did feel a little scary or too much, we want to do it again sometimes, like a kid going down the slide or somebody doing something naughty, you know, in terms of sexual activity, something that we don't think we should be doing or whatever it might be. And so just to understand the way our mind works because we've unconsciously been making choice after choice after choice that has caused the heart to be more and more disconnected 
from the aliveness of everything as it is, we become more and more desperate to feel alive. And so we often, I mean, there are different places, different things we do to get our fix of intensity. But one of the go-to places for us humans, because we have language, because we have this amazing power of imagination, you know, how many books, movies, stories that involve romance, sex, being naughty in one way or another, doing something dangerous one way or another, right? What's that all about? Tension and release. You know, when you take creative writing or whatever, it's always like about building the energy and then resolving it, at least enough, but setting up enough for the sequel, <laughs> right? Keeping a little tension there so you can bring people back. And so, it's uh, obviously it's hard for us to even, for some of us, especially to get close because the whole area of sexuality is so charged and hidden and complex and uh, all these ways that our mind deflects, like keeps us from taking a more stable or settled or honest look, see, oh, what's going on here? What's moving here? What is it that the heart wants? What is it that the heart thinks it's going to get? What has experience actually taught me? But that's really the continuity of awareness and the sensitivity. Like one of the things that mindful awareness does, it not only illuminates what's here and now, it also illuminates what I'm feeling, what's getting aroused because of what I'm seeing, what I'm smelling, what I'm tasting, what I'm touching. So that activates all the past, doesn't it? Like when I see one of you, if we have any history, all that history gets activated. So when we're in a sexual uh, situation, then it's going to activate any other sexual interaction or situation we've been in the past that's anywhere close to the one we're in now. It all starts to come alive. And in a way, if we're not conscious, if we're not aware, it starts to charge. All that unfinished business brings a charge to this interaction I'm having right now. So we develop the capacity over time to feel that and to stop charging the whole thing. So it can be just more simple. So we really begin to understand these different energies and how they want to move and what they are and what they aren't and how the mind likes to embellish and how the mind can instead see them in more simplistic, direct, immediate ways. I remember, I forget who it was, but somebody reporting that a friend of theirs who was a 
a therapist, maybe a psychiatrist or a psychologist or some kind of therapist, but said this person, this therapist saying that the hardest thing in their job was when people came in, you know, they've really fallen in love, they're in that falling in love stage and they have that, you know, that just the, the amazing energy that can be there. And to be that mirror for them, you know, in that therapeutic role and uh, not to, like to be a kind of grounding force which can throw water on those fires of lust and love and <clears throat> romance. And it, it can be a real implosion because it can feel, given how culture and our conditioning has charged these things, and of course, let's acknowledge the, whatever it's been, billion years of genetic conditioning around reproduction, that, inform sexuality, at least to some degree. You know, so many different conditioning forces. And it's not just reproduction. It's like if they, if the, the scientists, if you read the scientists who have studied primates, our close cousins in the animal world, um, they, a lot of the sexuality is a way of, uh, bonding as a community and it's not really related to reproduction you know sexual touch sexual interactions it's like saying uh, I'm willing to be vulnerable with you you're willing to be vulnerable with me I'm willing to do what makes you feel good you're willing to do what makes me feel good we belong together we have each other's backs so there's this, uh, yeah, that intimacy, that touch and uh, pleasure we can give each other and support each other in that way is it, it's like reinforces the group dynamic because we need each other. We operate as a clan, you know, not as individuals. And so this is what we can do. In the same way our organs are self-sacrificing in that way. You know, they work together. They're not up for themselves. And they're not in a business relationship with one another. You know, the heart and the lungs and the circulatory system and the muscular system. Maybe I'll say a few more things and then uh, see if there's some comments. And there's so much to say. I'll put, I'll send out more articles later for those of you who want to do more reading, but there's really a lot out there. And if you find any articles on your own that you feel illuminate this part of our lives, please send them to me and I'll include them in future emails to the group. But because, you know, culture has informed sexuality in all kinds of ways, and including toxic ways, of course. And it's really, um, you know, it can, it's just like movements of energies. And uh, like I was trying to evoke in the guided meditation instructions, like 
just letting energy move and playing with like a pressure and release, holding and release. I mean, we do that in all ways. I did a lot of yoga back in the 80s, not just the Hatha yoga, but all the different flavors of yoga. They're all this series of mudras, different ways you hold different centers in the body, the sphincter muscle and pulling in the Uddiyana Bandha, you pull in, block the throat. There's just different ways in breath work. I did a lot of pranayama. And it's all about tension and release and moving energies. And uh, the more we meditate, you know, in, in early Buddhism, we didn't use those maps of the meridians that you find in Chinese medicine or the, the uh, nadis that you find in pranayama and the yogic system because the Buddhist approach, at least early Buddhism, was much more naturalistic. It's not like there aren't those energies and it's not like we don't encounter those subtle energies when we practice. But we just let, we trust nature to do what it's going to do. The, the way to relate is not to take the role of one manipulating or directing the subtle energies, but just being that open, loving, non-judging, <clears throat> non-controlling space. It just so happens that these energies know what they're doing already. And this is the great discovery in our meditation practice and even just in daily life that how we navigate difficult situations like sexual interactions or falling in love or flirting or just the energy of being proximate of another human being, just the charge, even if it's somebody that you're not, you wouldn't ordinarily be interested in a sexual interaction with, but there's just energy when we're close to other human beings, right? And just to feel that and to, instead of thinking, I better figure out what to do with this energy or I don't trust this energy, I'm going to just ignore it. Maybe that energy knows what it should do, but it takes some time. You know, we have to start in places where we feel safe and then learn to be that empty flute or use the simile that you like if you didn't, but that didn't really work for you. But in one way or another, starting where, in places where we feel relatively safe, just see if all the different levels, the social level, all the way, which would be kind of the grosser level, like I'm a human being, an entity, you're an entity, we're different, you know, so on that grosser level, all the way to just energies moving, and even more subtle than that. Maybe it all knows what it's doing. What happens when I give myself only to the sensitivity and that the response, the responses, speaking or not speaking, doing or not doing, thinking or not thinking, let it come from that. That might be the flavor of liberation, you know, that the Buddhist teachings point to. Like one more burden, being an enlightened being, 
being an enlightened being in a sexual interaction, you know, being an enlightened being making toast or pooping or brushing my teeth or it's like, oh my God, I got to figure out why, what enlightenment looks like here and then I got to figure out what enlightenment looks like here. And it can just be a heavy trip. And it's the same thing, you know, as because, you know, with the next three precepts, the first two, it's basically saying that there is this movement of hate, aversion, which leads us to harm ourselves and others. And there is this movement of greed, which leads us to take more than we should take. And here are three places you should really pay attention to those two, the, those two forces. Your sexual relations, sexual activities, speech, and around intoxicating activities, where you intoxicating in the way that the mind tends to lose its clarity, its sensitivity. Because we set in motion stuff that have long-term consequences to how it is for us and how it is for others. So one of those more toxic forms of contraction and release is around power. And when we look at sexual misconduct, so much of sexual misconduct where real harm is caused is where there's a power differential. But, but we have to be honest with each other. There's charge around power, wanting power, having power, feeling bad about not having power, being angry about not having power, grabbing power, holding on to power. And of course, that whole relationship to power, wherever, however we experience it, and it's probably different in different relationships, different places in our lives, why wouldn't it show up in sexuality, in our sexual relations? So that's just an interesting place an interesting lens to look at, like receptivity, yielding, and, and, and how does the lens of power illuminate it? It isn't about judgment, it's about helping us to see what we're not seeing. And of course, it, you know, in the traditional sense, it has a lot to do with patriarchy and kind of more traditional senses of male and female. And, and how people interact sexually. And maybe I'll leave it here. We can pick it up next week, but I'll just create a little time for those online and those in the room to speak, asking questions or just sharing your own learnings. Because probably if we took enough time to hear from you know, whatever it is, a hundred of us, it looks like, both between the room here and those of you online, probably every one of us have made more than a few, had more than a few moral lapses or painful experiences, humiliating experiences, caused herself or caused others harm, have regrets. So, as I mentioned, you know, we... Uh, 
these places where there's a moral lapse, where we ourselves feel in our hearts that that wasn't the best way to have acted, to have thought, to have spoken, then how can we turn those so-called mistakes into a temple that lives on as guidance? Like, honey, be careful when a similar situation arises for you. And this, these kind of conversations here as a whole group next week in our small groups can be a good place. So feel free, those of you online, to raise your digital hand. If you don't know how to do that, you can just unmute yourself. And those of you in the room can just raise your hand or something. And if you don't mind, I'll ask you to come up front so you can use the mic. Everybody online can hear you that way. Yeah, what reflections do you have or questions about what I've said? Anybody in the room here? Because your way you relate to sexuality is all perfectly clear, <laughs> balanced. I mean, we feel that some way sometimes because we've had the good fortune, the good and bad fortune, to submerge, you know. Or we get in a pattern, whatever it is, like not having sexual interactions could be a pattern or having particular sexual interactions in a particular way so we don't have to think about it. That's just what I do, that's just who I am. Like closed, don't open that box, it's good enough. <laughs> that was my approach, it's like in my 20s, for eight years I didn't date, didn't have sexual relations with others and uh, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not judging myself for that. It, it worked well enough. It was messy, but anything I would have done in those years would have been messy. And maybe messier, maybe not, I don't know. But it was a strategy, you know, just like avoid it. Until it got really clear that that wasn't a healthy strategy, you know. And then I went right from that to monogamy. I said to win. Hey, I'm leaving. We were living in New York City at a yoga meditation center right in Manhattan because I wanted to be with a teacher and uh, felt some attraction and a lot of other uh, feelings for Wynn and recognizing some deep things about Wynn that hit home in terms of being a trustworthy person. I said, hey, do you want to leave with me? <laughs> we had never dated. I mean, we knew each other because we lived in this spiritual community together for a couple years. So we knew each other pretty well in a kind of group setting. And, uh, and we went, I went right from sort of being celibate for almost eight years with others, I should say. I did masturbate. But to being in a monogamous relationship for over 30 years now. <laughs> and that's like another strategy, like... And it is, it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm not proud of it, but it seems to work pretty well. Like, being a sexual being is a challenging, complex thing to navigate for us human beings. Generally speaking, maybe not for you, of course, being deeply wise. 
But funny that you're not willing to raise your hand and speak up. <laughs> okay, thank you, Jay. Do you mind sitting up front? I knew I could humiliate people for sharing. <laughs> and because we're recording and I'm not going to put the camera on you, that's okay. Just to keep it, sure. protect your privacy a little. Yeah, I relate to all that. Uh, sort of like the feels black and white in terms of like, um, I mean, they're going to like be alone and, you know, do the practice and just, you know, practice awareness and be in solitude and have a balanced mind. And that's, you know, a lot easier at least um, in, in some degree of seclusion. Or the other option seems that I'm going to, you know, be in relationship and, you know, the patterns are going to come out and that's just what it is and, you know, all the neediness or whatever it is is it's just going to all come tumbling out of the box. And then so I guess I find myself having this approach avoid strategy of like, okay, I'll dip a toe in, and, you know, until, you know, all the mess comes tumbling out and with the practice... I'm able to see it, so then I back off, and I sort of, like, recalibrate. But I don't think that's ideal, so I guess, you know, just sharing that and wondering if you have any thoughts about, like, that doesn't seem like the ultimate situation of kind of, like, dipping into the mess and then sort of, like, backing away back into the practice. Um, Because practicing right in the middle of the mess as it's happening doesn't always seem possible. It's more like, um, you know, like you eat a big meal and then you deal with the stomachache later. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody talked about this as a porcupine going down a drain pipe and then realizing, I don't want to go down this drain pipe, and it's really hard to back up. And that's kind of what I heard Uh, Jay's saying, because it is true that we're afraid to kind of open because there will be a floodgate, partly because we've been afraid of this part of our life we've held back, partly skillfully, partly unskillfully. So then when we either are surprised and just find ourselves starting down that drain pipe or going in that direction, that relationship with another person or other people even, um, then it's hard to stop. Better not to date. You know, if you're going to date, better not to have sex. If you're going to have sex, better not to spend the night. <laughs> you know, it's like, goes on and on like that. You know, don't give your contact information out or whatever. But, uh, so the nice thing is we do have our imagination And imagination is like a mini-reality, just like a dream is like a mini-reality. So one of the ways to dip our our toe in, to sort of have a sexual relationship, is to say, oh, I met this person, I'm aware of this person, I'm aware of what I feel when I'm around that person, I feel the different energies, it's complex, Some of it is like desire for friendship. Some of it is a desire for touch and affection. Some of it is a desire for sex. Some of it is just 
desire for someone to share the rent. <laughs> I mean, it, it can be so much that, that is there. And to, like, in our imagination, we imagine all that might move. And we can imagine ways to go beyond putting the toe in, all the way to the ankle, all the way, and just see what reactions and what fears and what forces get activated as we imagine. We start to kind of grease and uh, just get a sense of what I might face if I were to interact with that person in that way. And, and the other thing is to be honest with ourselves about the price of not doing that. Like what, what is the effect of not doing that? The fear. So a lot of how we navigate our life is we start to notice, like, uh, like when we're sitting, what we're really doing is we're just uh, using any technique that increases sensitivity. And then we'll feel all the places energetically where there's a do not go, do not look, do not feel. And we'll sense the weight of all the ways we're trying to control what wants to move. And that might, that's a little bit, I mean, it literally happened that way for me in terms of leaving behind my eight years of not dating, not having sexual or even any kind of romantic interactions, um, I started, when I meditated, I started to feel something. And my best friend uh, has started to date, and I think maybe had just gotten married to this woman who was uh, a little bit psychic and did a lot of energetic uh, work. And so we were having Thanksgiving together, and she was doing a little work as my good friend was making Thanksgiving Thanksgiving dinner. And she was just, wasn't even touching me, just sort of holding her hands. And she said, uh, well, why don't you, you know, I said, God, I'm just feeling a lot there. She said, well, why don't you just start talking? You know, just feel what you're feeling and just start talking. And I just heard myself saying, I think I'm going to ask this person to leave with me. <laughs> you know, to come to Minneapolis with me. And I was like, that was a bit of a surprise. I mean, I knew I was feeling stuff about when, but I was like, I'm not going to go there. It's complicated. You know, I, I had that attitude, which is true. It is complicated. But so part of it is, it's like being honest about the forces that are alive in us and respecting them and realizing, I don't really know how I'm supposed to live this life. You know, from that sort of cognitive point of view, we don't really know. And so why not just sort of like, okay, this is clearly something moving. This is what it wants to do. I don't have a clue. Why not do it? And it's like, I mean, I take some building up to, believe it. I, you know, but, but I think that's the direction we want to go. It's really the opposite direction of, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to stay in the control seat. I'm going to map it out. And when I get confused, I'll read a self, self-help book. I'll take that map, I'll internalize it, and I'll project it out in the world. 
I think of the sort of the gross example of that is, uh, you know, what happened in the 50s and 60s around childbirth, mostly male doctors, um, you know, mapping out like what the right way to do pregnancy and childbirth would be or something like that. You know, just how weird things can get when, and it's a little bit like even in Buddhism, there's some of the Buddhist psychology that got written in the centuries after the time of the Buddha just had such an elegant precision, a little bit like mathematics does, but it's very unworldly too. It's like how they map out the mind and these 52 components and this is this and this is that and there's something true to those elegant maths, but it doesn't really tell us how to you know, whether we should kiss and how you ask for consent and <laughs> like how we navigate having a body and a heart and desire and sensitivity. <clears throat> so let's come back and feel free to send in your comments and questions this week. And uh, obviously there's a lot to cover in the last three weeks of the class around mindful speech and mindful consumption. But we'll take a little time, and of course this will come up, I'm sure, in the small groups next week. Um, and don't feel like you have to study the articles, because we really have a lot of richness in terms of studying our own sexual impulses, sexual feelings. Even if you're 80, 90 years old, I'm finding as a mid-60-year-old, lots of sexual ideas still moving, sexual feelings. And same with speech, just like how we use speech, all the different ways we use speech to control, to dominate, to manipulate, to love, to care, to support, really, and just, just notice, sense it all. Nice to be with everybody tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.